0: Okay. Hi, Wolf. Hi, Skinner. Hi, Matt. Uh, um, Excited to be joining you guys to talk about the AI conclave that we're doing in Spain in November.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting.
0: So I thought we could begin by describing our own backgrounds and sort of how we're coming at this question. Why... We're doing this conclave at all. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the time the AI questions are framed as sort of technical inevitability. But when you look at the way that people are thinking and talking about AI, it actually seems to be so much more of almost like a mirror on the human, the human psychology, the particular philosophical and ideological, um, assumptions and, and, uh, beliefs that people have coming into things. Uh, I'm wondering, Wolf, where do you come at these questions?
1: Yeah. So I was trained as a mechanical engineer, um, uh, that, I taught myself computer science on the side, uh, during that time actually, instead of doing homework. So I've always sort of uh, had a very technical way of approaching things. And um, I I ended up not working in technical fields for very long because I realized that some of the most important questions were not the technical questions, but rather the philosophical um, and social and, and political questions and that the most important issues in our society were not the ones that could be solved by just like a marginal engineer applying his talents to through known methods to known problems and we had to think more outside the box about these philosophical matters to get anywhere interesting so i ended up doing that i ended up founding palladium magazine uh, as an expression of that work and you know now we're doing this this AI conclave, this um, conference in Spain for a month to really dive into understanding this artificial intelligence situation on a philosophical level. Um, And so I've been interested in artificial intelligence, even the the transformative implications of artificial intelligence. And I've been diving into that in quite deep ways occasionally for the last 10 years. And so I feel like I've got a pretty good understanding of the discourse around the whole thing and the technical ideas and uh, sort of where people imagine that it's all going and what are the different factions and what are the dynamics of how the hype cycles work in this stuff. But looking at it now, I mean, especially sort of it's very timely because there's been some recent breakthroughs that have got everyone talking about it. But um, when I look at it, I realize again that you know whether our technical problems here to solve uh the there's sort of this larger question of what would it mean to solve those technical questions uh and or what's the surrounding context and how we're thinking about this whole thing again there's this huge philosophical component that um when i really think about that i notice it looks like everyone else is confused and i feel confused and there are a bunch of things that I'm really excited to work through with you guys and so I'm excited to get together in person in an environment that's very embodied with a bunch of other very smart people just uh, relaxing and thinking and talking and really trying to understand over the course of a month I think that's going to be a very productive environment that's something we've done not on this scale before but but in the smaller iterations that we've done like this it's been always very productive uh, to get our network together And so I I feel like we have a lot of very interesting kind of threads to pull on going in, especially in this philosophy, theology, epistemology, the humanities, um, in relation to this AI issue. Um, And I'm very excited to kind of get to the bottom of it, come out of it with a a much more sophisticated understanding of how to approach this whole issue.
0: Skinner, what's your uh, background and where are you coming from here? Well, I... I started out life
2: uh planning to go into politics and and then you know life took me in a slightly different direction. Uh, after college, I ended up going into software startups, uh, mostly working in finance and intellectual property side of things, not in the technical fields and and so i've been I mean I've been paying attention to to these questions for quite a long time now, and i've've lived through a couple of a couple of AI hype cycles at this point. And you know my my academic background is, is in philosophy, economics, and political science, and and so I, I um, but my research actually for the last ten years has been principally focused in psychology because I, at the end of, of my studies of of those other three fields, I concluded that at the end of the day they are all fundamentally psychology, um, that you know how we make decisions about resources is is fundamentally a psychological question. Uh, how we make decisions about how we allocate and distribute power in society, also a psychological question. And then in philosophy itself, you know this is, I think the you know the the core contribution that Wittgenstein made to the to the field of philosophy is sort of to point at the the thinker that the sort of underlying and that well, we can't separate the thought from the thinker um, at a very fundamental level. And, and so this, this led to, you know, my, my last 10 years of kind of deep diving into to the works of Carl Jung, Soren Kierkegaard, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I mean, a, a, quite a long list, but I, you know, those three certainly have had outsized influence uh, on, on my thinking. Um, and, and actually also, very, you know, quite importantly, uh, Henry Bergson, uh, who, whose philosophy of time I think is quite quite critical and and he importantly influenced all of c s lewis w h auden and t s eliot and and their own philosophies of 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 time are are more or less derivative of his and you know so and and the reason I bring up time is that he, you know the, the thinker exists in in a temporal context as much as in a spatial context and and so by by temporal context what I mean is um, a, a an existence that is always undergoing change. You know, ultimately, that's what we can say time fundamentally is. It is the duration through change, uh, and and so we have we as humans have been trying to answer these like fundamental questions of identity for as long as we've been you know quote unquote conscious uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know and and part of that identity question has also been. To define what it is to be conscious, what what does what does it mean to, like right? what what is the difference between human consciousness and other other forms of consciousness, et cetera. And so you know, machine intelligence is is yet another problem, one of these hard problems for us to to grapple with. It's it's another mirror uh, that we have to look into that reflects back to us our our own. Suppositions about our consciousness and the consciousness in the world around. Um, you know, I, I I think that we could also say that philosophy or that psychology is is the introspective version of theology, and theology is the projection of psychology. You know, that there's sort of two sides of the same coin. There there is sort of this like self consciousness. Uh, and and the inward look at its operations is fundamentally what what real psychological um, investigation is doing. And then, but we but we also project an understanding of of the world outward from from that inner working. And then we make certain conclusions. We extrapolate. We look at the other, uh, and we either then. You know we have these default modes of perception that are you know basically built on biases and heuristics, and so you know by default each of us is walking around with an assumption. For example, the other is fundamentally similar to myself or fundamentally different, and and you can see these you know those kind of default biases at work in the, the debate around AI. You have you know the people that uh, that. That think that the machine is going to be this benevolent augmentation of human capacity uh, are are projecting what are fundamentally their own kind of like uh, the, their self view that they're moral agent who would help others and so and they're assuming you know that this is sort of the way the world is. And then when you see all these panicked people um, who are certain that AI is going to just chew us up and spit us out you know i think that it, it this often indicates that that's what they would do if they were so empowered um you know i think that this is uh this is it, it it's a quite quite a quite an insight actually into the mm. to the minds and intentions of of the thinkers so you know i think the the exciting part about being in and and it's you know i think the, the use of the term embodied is really useful and important here because, I mean, I think embodiment is also one of the kind of core questions around uh, machine intelligence and and consciousness. Uh, You know, can it really be conscious like human consciousness if it's not embodied in the same kind of survival sense that we are embodied? I mean, I think that that's actually one of the core questions, if not the, the most important question. But the fact that we're going to be in person together having these conversations is uh is interesting because it it gives us the opportunity actually to to reflect as mirrors to each other over a course of time and build through building relationships with one another that we we can kind of get into a lot of details um about those thoughts and thought processes that are you can't do in a twitter conversation or something where you are just kind of curling one-liners back and forth so you know this is I think a, a unique opportunity to kind of like slow down and 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 perform deep thought rather than kind of re- do this hand-wringing thing and saying, you know, people, people really should be doing deep thinking about these important questions, but instead they're just lobbing one-liners on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm really interested in this aspect of the... Uh, apocalyptic thinking because to my mind that's the single feature that most distinguishes the discourse around ai from many other um even very profound questions mm-hmm. of technology and industrial society and so on um when you have for example just to take two quotes uh first from uh sam altman of open ai quote AI will probably most likely lead to the end of the world, but in the meantime, there'll be great companies. End quote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. I think it was a, originally sort of a joke, but I, I, I believe he did say that. Um, second quote: uh, Elon Musk of uh, Tesla and uh, SpaceX, and oh. uh, <laughs> and uh, and lately of Twitter. X, Um, quote, even benign dependency on AI slash automation is dangerous to civilization if taken so far that we eventually forget how the machines work, Um, end quote. Another quote from Elon, quote, AI doesn't have to be evil to destroy humanity. If AI has a goal and humanity just happens in the way, it will destroy humanity as a matter of course without even thinking about it. No hard feelings. End quote. Um, so, why is it that this technology in particular gives rise to this type of thinking? Um, and I mean, my null hypothesis, sort of, as I think about the history of the humanities and and sort of Western thought and uh intellectual history. Is this just the sort of the latest stage, the sort of uh almost like a kind of teleological endpoint of the type of, you know, you could call it Faustian thinking or thinking about the the like Skinner, you're mentioning these assumptions about space and time that are kind of rooted in a lot of our uh our precon preconceptions um about even i guess technology and society and so on is is ai almost just like the (laughs) the perfect entity at the end of this kind of
1: progress or or what how do we make sense of it i I think Yes, in some sense, AI is kind of this end stage of Faustian civilization. Like it's, it's you know, we, this constant kind of scientific technical self overcoming, building more and more external capability, um, more and more calculation, and so on. The kind of end point of that is, well, we build a machine copy of the human soul or something, right? Like that's kind of the idea that, um, that lies at the end of that whole kind of thinking. Um, with respect to like, why is there this apocalyptic thinking around that? I mean, so at the very simple level, I think maybe um, just because it is the end stage of, of you know, the current cultural mode, uh, we're not really going to think past that very effectively. It's sort of like, well, we reached the apocalypse and, and then you know, what else is there to do? um but then i think there's also a reality to that it's it's not just a psychological feature there's a there's a uh, sort of um it's not like oh yeah of course we all know life goes on and everything will be fine and nothing crazy will happen at all if you build that thing and people are just being irrational about that no it's it's we actually don't know uh how to think beyond that in a non-millenarian sense like there's you have this advent of uh, machines that, or this hypothetical advent of machines that are capable of doing every economic function and every political function that humans can do. That's the idea of AI, right? If that's what we're building. Well, okay, now you have this thing that's that's presumably capable of, well, it's capable of doing everything that humans can do. Maybe it's better because one, you know, we seem to be able to improve machine capital to be hundreds of times stronger than humans and faster and all these different things. Uh, well, maybe, why not smarter? And so then you have this idea, well, now the human, as we know it, has become obsolete in the face of this this capital construction. And, and our entire existence is founded on our ability to fill... Effectively fill a material niche in the world through our skills, through our capabilities, uh, through our intelligence, largely, but obviously other things as well. Um, And if we're supposing this this construction that can, or set of constructions that can fill those niches and our niche better than we can, that is um, it within that within that idea. That's the end of the line for for humanity as we know it and so then the question is not like oh there's some error being made where of course everything's going to be fine but people are being irrational it's it's okay given that we think that this is possible and that it's fairly clear that if you built it it's threatening this core niche how do we think about that uh in a psychologically healthy way is it is is the psychologically healthy way like oh actually maybe we shouldn't be doing this whole Faustian thing at all or is it well it's going to be fine we'll build it and we'll figure something out okay how will we figure what will we figure out what is the sort of path through that um and and so i think the apocalyptic thing so comes you're saying from like there's like within the logic of the idea there is this seemingly inevitable sort of end uh of at least humanity and no one kind of has within this whole cultural apparatus found a way out of that um, that logic. People ignore it. People people come up with all kinds of copes around it, but but there's no clear path through it that isn't just you know the end of everything we know, the end of our culture, and the end of our species, right? Because that that's kind of what it's what it's implying back to us, and so. That's a very interesting thing to engage with. And I think it's going to take sort of quite a lot of philosophical sophistication to, to and psychological sophistication to be able to like comfortably reason past that boundary and find maybe you know, like resituate ourselves in that universe, or to find some flaw in that, in that narrative that isn't actually convincing path out yeah i mean there's a, a bunch of obvious flaws
0: one is just the assumption about value or what, humans, what what do you mean assumption about value you made an assumption about where human
1: the human value is it
2: comes from material production
1: well the, uh, the human material the human material like existence comes from human material production right but you made a claim about value the, the, then, that's the, no, that, i'm not that's making the a claim for, about value i'm making a claim about material existence
0: Okay, but then if you're not making the claim about value, then you're leaving open the possibility that humanity is valuable for a bunch of other things sure. that have nothing yeah, yeah, to do I, with right.
1: It. Humanity, humanity is. But valuable that's one of the things that gets
0: a, elided in the but, uh, assumption but, okay, about he, inevitability of but but, a but then, process. then what you're
1: talking about is okay, humanity is specially valuable, but humanity's material existence is threatened. Now we have a situation where the material existence of all value in the universe is threatened. And this leads to, to a lot of the claims that, that have been made around this space where people are saying, well, they actually the AI future by default is this valueless future where there's no more human value. So there's nothing valuable. It's just this machine efficiency for the end of, until the end of time. And all the human stuff, which was the valuable stuff, has been materially destroyed and so yes like material existence and value are two different things maybe the human has all the value maybe it doesn't maybe there is value beyond Mm -hmm. that that horizon but but the argument is is the 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 sharpest form of the argument is strictly with respect to the material existence of can we afford our own flesh right that's that's really the the question
2: but are you are you arguing that humans are going to be destroyed by the machine, or that if we're just, if our, if our day-to-day lives are more or less replaced by, uh, by the machine, that we won't, we won't find intrinsic value in living. I, I, because those seem like two different existential. Yeah, no,
1: right. So that, that may be something. And I, I sort of fear that that actually happens before we ever build any machine capable of filling our niche, is that we've already lost faith in our own Sure. I mean, for life one, but, one could but say that we, the, we've reached that yeah, one could it's say we've, we've reached one, that already we may have already reached that and that's, that is a huge problem in our culture right but there's also this very material problem there's two ways that, that I think uh, the advent of some of a let's say an intelligent and, and superior competitor to our niche like materially superior competitor to our niche uh, would, would threaten us way number one is it yes yeah, just you know wipes us out or whatever way number two is it doesn't wipe us out it just exploits the niche more efficiently to the point where, you know, the cost of energy and the cost of matter and the cost of food and the cost of of oxygen sort of like cost, you know, in, in the sense of how much, how efficiently, how much work you have to do to get those things, that they rise to the point where human life becomes impossible because there's just too much competition. The same way, like, if you drop fish into... Into a, a, a pond that formerly did not have fish in it, you know, you wipe out it, the fish. Just very efficiently wipe out all the plankton, and now whatever was relying on the existence of the plankton is like suddenly no longer viable. And so the fish, not by direct, directly destroying, let's say the, the little water beetles that eat they plankton, they don't necessarily eat them directly, but they eat everything they eat, and now they don't have any niche for existence anymore. They die. So but, that, but, those are two different ways that, that humanity right, but, could but, but be threatened I, by this thing.
2: I I understand the metaphor, but I, I'm not I'm a little unsure about the, like whether this is a viable direct comparison. I mean in, like what do you what do you envision? I mean we, we always hear about, you know, the the sort of paperclip maximization argument mm-hmm. or whatever. But like in in material terms, you know, if we if we were to assume some kind of rational impulse on the part of you know the machine, and we also like the, this debate, this conversation is already presupposing that AI is the, is going to be this unitary uh, instrument. I yeah. mean, I think no, I'm not
1: a, I'm not proposing that it's a unitary thing. I I actually don't believe that. I think a lot of people do believe in the sort of unitariness of the AI, and that's something. That's one of these like weird kind of philosophical theological assumptions that people make. And it has but to be do... kind of start with this. Assu- I mean, it, it's, a, well, it's very common I, that people sort of out of the box. Yeah, yes. People really people try do, to justify it. Yes, people do make that assumption. I'm not making that assumption. Like, I, you know, you, I'm just talking about the existence of technology, the ability to manufacture right. uh, intelligence and agency uh through industrial or some future process that that sort of right but uh, but from, it, but then from a teleological from perspective i mean
2: so we if we have this set of intelligences that are operating on mish you know inorganic substrates yes. uh what what then is the what what is the motivation for that inorganic that that intelligence on an inorganic substrate to compete directly what is it competing with us on is it you know oil and gas resources is it uh, rare earth minerals uh well like, let's because I, mean, I i think that the, these are actually the very specific like what what are they going to make that
1: crowds us out yeah exactly so that's that's a good question this is one of these philosophical questions it gets into the nature of how agency and value relate and what kinds of things are likely to be pursued by non-human intelligence and so on so at a very first approximation it's like well whatever you construct it to pursue it'll have some inbuilt drives or whatever um but then you know that may it it may itself start uh mutate in some way it may not stay on that course but the paperclip argument comes out of the idea that well, if you were a paperclip factory and you made your AI to maximize the paperclips in your factory, then at the point where it kind of like gets out of hand, uh, it's still got this idea of building paperclips and it just kind of tries yeah. to run some universal I mean, it's paperclip like, it's, factory. It's sort of the Fantasia but, argument. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The, the magician's magician's assistant, right? And. Mm-hmm. Um, But you you can imagine many such things, or you can imagine that they start reflecting on on their own values and changing them, or just in some irrational way, mutating. What What those particular values are, actually, I don't think matters very much because what's going to happen is once you have strategic thought and agency attached to any particular value system, you get ideas like, well, it's valuable to have more resources. It's valuable to have more intelligence. It's valuable to have more security. And when you have a bunch of agents in the world competing for resources, intelligence, security, et cetera, what you end up with is competition. Um, they start, you know, at, at first just trying to get resources for themselves or for their tendency or whatever, how, however, you carve up that space. Um, but then the, at some point, they are also competing with humans for those resources and competing with each other. Maybe there will be wars right this is all this all gets very speculative but the thing that um that feels very solid is is like once you have the constructed agency pursuing any particular goals then it that if it is more efficient than humans at um competing for resources then we have this problem right we have yeah this i thing mean that can compete so
0: but a lot of this brings up i think uh, so many or it's sort of revealing of the the structure of the the meta problem here or the the meta problem set for example like to my i just go to this epistemic place when Mm -hmm. when i hear you say this these things because it's sort of like okay you can be out on a you know speculative branch of a speculative branch of like material science and so on and be making any kind of uh, mm-hmm. you know extrapolation of how agency works in a different context and say well because we know the animals behave this way you know and we have these assumptions about natural selection and survival and so on this would lead to our thinking about uh, a non-human intelligence acting in that way but for me there's this whole there's almost like this epistemic gap which is something like We know what we can see and observe and Mm -hmm. use our scientific method to do now with what exists. Um, And then I see a bunch of people jumping to basically what I'm calling this theological or or Skinner is talking about as far as psychology, right? Like jumping to this projection, basically, of like uh, what I can't prove scientifically, but what I can, you know, what is really... What I really strongly believe because it seems really real to me based on basically a bunch of uh not improvable or not non-provable sort of axiomatic assumptions that are that are either unique to me or or sort of you know things that I have received or inherited or whatever. Um what I'm curious about mostly is how do you do the rigorous bridging? Of these two distinct epistemic domains such that you can actually mm-hmm. have a rigorous projection of can um, you well or or at the very least you can see you can see it for what it is i guess is what ah, i'm okay. saying yeah not so necessarily that like okay a transparent projection sure sure like yeah. basically a Uh, rigorous thinking about the process whether it's psychological or something else theological inductive you know whatever the sort of frame we want to put on it but like we're not actually we're we're actually being very clear about what is on solid ground and Mm -hmm. what is is speculation or what is belief in some non-scientific way and I for my mind like this is extremely important in in sort of the history of of science or Western thinking and and, and epistemology. Like, you actually can't spend all of your energy on the imaginative speculation because what Mm -hmm. happens is you crowd out the rigor of Mm -hmm. what you can actually uh, intersubjectively prove, right? So it's not that, like... You know uh, Isaac Newton or whoever didn't have all kinds of theories about um, things that were went beyond the realm of you know what what he could what he could demonstrate. But but what we view as science and our that that particular empirical tradition of knowledge is grounded in what you can actually prove, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess this is my concern here.
1: Yeah, so this is what's so exciting about the conclave that we're about to run, is that we're going to be attempting to do that philosophical deep thinking on, okay, I've painted a picture here, which is basically, let's say, the, the natural outgrowth of the Faustian perspective uh, on this whole, uh, you know, we think we can make AI according to this these set of assumptions that we've inherited within the kind of Faustian culture. We think it'll have these effects because this is sort of the, the, how the thinking works, but yeah, so one of the things we have to do is go back and say, well, wait a minute, this is crazy, like this is a, a really interesting result, let's go back and see uh, can we rigorously prove that, What or or what assumptions do we have to make, what assumptions are we making, is there something wrong with those assumptions, are there other assumptions we could make, can we end up in some whole different cultural frame of reference that seems more plausible to us that mm-hmm. actually doesn't have this result, or do we have to actually go and bite this bullet and uh, sort of accept this result and, and work from there and find nonetheless find value. Like that, that is the philosophical activity around this, right? It's like apply skepticism to that frame, uh, but like to try to kind of find the, the cracks in it or find the alternatives to it or, or find what we actually know. Maybe it's just some big fever dream actually. All we know is something much less speculative than that. Um, but mm-hmm. that's gonna be a very exciting activity and that's what I'm looking forward to is I think coming out of that conversation, I expect to have a much more rigorous and much more plausible and much more promising um, cultural direction than what we're going in with.
0: Skinner, I'm curious, I know you've done a lot of thinking and, and work on this idea of the, the machine, the mega machine, where these ideas of uh, almost uh, you know, techniques, you could say as agent where the, like, this is obviously not new in, um, or maybe not obvious to some people, but this is, uh, I think, uh, clearly not uh, uh, actually a recent phenomenon, maybe AI is actually the just the latest iteration of a kind of strand of thought that has gone back quite a way.
2: Yeah, I mean, at least at least back to the beginning of of what we call the industrial revolution. Um, I mean, this the replacement of human labor with machine labor, uh, or work, you know, in in the pure physics sense of the the use of the word work, you know, the replacement of uh, inorganic work uh, mm-hmm. or by inorganic work of of human labor. Um, Certainly, began all of the all of these debates are are rooted in that, and and we are whether we like it or not influenced by the history of industrialization and the history of the, the responses to it, you know, including and you know not unimportantly, whatever however you feel about it, Marxism, um, you know, which which is still you know one of the most important and dominant critiques of industrialization and and a lot of these problems, you know, we like. Our thinking is much more clouded by by those old, you know, nineteenth mm. century debates than, than we realize, mm. uh, and and I think I think that the, I mean, because there, there's the the question of of agency, um, which is also somewhat of a, this like at an individual level and, and a community level, a, a voluntary. Delegation of agency that happens so uh, and and that delegation of agency. It doesn't necessarily mean that the thing that. That the process to which it's delegated actually has the agency. It just means that you no longer have it. Uh, So like we, we could say that we delegate our agency to technics to the supply chain to you know a lot of these you know w- like we can call them forces but what what really it is is inertia like i'm not going to expend the energy to overcome the inert state in which i find myself uh, which is you know to change the state of affairs and so whatever this kind of like default hmm. trajectory of of the of inertia that that i'm okay with leaving it there i mean you you could even say that the whole idea of machine intelligence and agency is just a, a grand accumulation of that inert energy. Uh, the refusal of somebody to take agency. I mean, it, because it, it assumes that we start with agency. And I don't think we do. I don't think mm-hmm. that consciousness implies agency. So I don't think people are born into the world. I mean, they're certainly not born into the world with agency. You know, a baby has no agency at all. Uh, our, our default state is is the is the opposite of agency. It's dependency, and and so the question is really whether people, when they look out at you know at the point in life when they even realize that they could have any agency, they look out at the world and say, ah, that doesn't look worth it, um, and then and then it looks like something else has this agency. Um, I mean, you, if, you, if you look, if you think of, in these terms of, of Adam Smith's invisible hand, you know, the, the idea that the market has agency uh, in, in this sort of, you know, invisible way is really just what I'm talking about. Like, oh, okay, well, I, I'm not going to do anything to change the nature of market incentives. I'm just going to feed them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it, it doesn't really mean that the market is the real thing that has agency and thought. Uh, it just means that you, you're choosing not to have it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is definitely my view of of th- these things. So, I I think that when we talk about the machine and techniques you know, it, it's really easy to create these abstract subjects, you know, capitalize the letters, and then, you know, it's a thing, you know, a person almost. And I think this is really dangerous. I think just the grammar that we use, the way that we talk about these things starts to create lots of assumptions that that don't necessarily bear out in empirical reality. And so, you know, I think, uh, along with Wolf, I think one of the most important parts of this process is, uh, you know, if we're trying to move towards something that's more philosophically grounded, um, the way I would frame it is that we, we need to come up with a long list of falsifiable hypotheses, like uh, rather than thinking of well, what, what can we prove to be true? Uh, well, we can't. I mean, th- at least in, in my epistemology, nothing can be proven to be true. It's just so far hasn't been proven false. Um, and and so we need to figure out what things might we try to prove false, so we can at least eliminate those from our our map of reality through experiment. I mean that that is ultimately the way that that real science progresses is not in trying to prove some hypothesis true, but in in, in sort of crossing off all the things that we can relatively safely assume aren't true based on, uh, you know, the fact that they didn't bear out in experiment or in empirical observation. So the- Yeah, uh, yeah, one of the- Oh, go ahead.
0: No, no, go ahead. One of the things that's most exciting to me about the Conclave and the sort of broader work uh, that we have to do here is this idea of doing the scholastic, really systematic process of of, uh, thinking through formally, Hmm. What is going on? what is being claimed? what is being assumed and and what can we actually know right. um and what does that mean? uh on the agency point, and um on the agency point, uh to my mind, one of the most fascinating reversals in basically Western thought has been in the last maybe hundred hundred fifty years how we went from the sort of default ideological axiom of the British foreign office in, hmm. in the late 19th century or, or even earlier than that, but it was crystallized in this expression, men not measures, i.e. human agency, not sort of hmm. automaton, uh, you know, bureaucratic procedure or generalizable rule. Uh, and then in, in in you know, 44 years ago, uh, we have this IBM slide that declared that a computer can never be held accountable, therefore a computer must never make a management decision, <laughs> all the way up to the present where you hear, uh, I mean, not only is it everything from, you know, know your customer compliance, to just basically the imposition of bureaucracy the imposition of rules onto almost everything as basically a supposedly value neutral uh or or non-ideological position about what is actually going to lead to a better outcome that that sort of simply the imposition of us a, of a sort of proceduralization rather than well a, I wonder a human judgment is I...
1: I wonder is if it's better. Yeah. I know, I, in some mm-hmm. sense, like the the giving up of agency to these measures and and markets and procedures is, is sort of the default state, as Skinner is implying. And you have to actually uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have to actually construct your own agency and train your own agency to some extent. And, and what's happened is at a cultural level, just the, the collapse of of agency. And mm-hmm. and so that leads to all these agency fictions and all these. Um, impositional procedures.
2: And so much of this comes from like legal liability. I mean, I I would say that like way more of the things that we're talking about are downstream of legal liability in the aftermath of the, you know, the alphabet soup uh, agencies coming out of the new deal and the, you know, administrative state um, Mm -hmm. more or less creating a guilty until proven innocent context in which most economic actors are uh, like that that's our our default context now mm. and so as a result the so-called
0: managerial revolution right yeah so
2: everybody yeah. is trying to cover their ass and they don't want to be sued they don't want to be fired they don't want to be hauled before a review board and so if they aren't actually the one making the decision if it's outsourced to whether it's a process uh, a, a metric a machine, whatever uh, you know, McKinsey, um, then, then they at least can say, well, it wasn't me. You know, you can't, you can't blame me. You can't fire me. You can't sue me. Uh, and and so, of course, if a, at the point that everybody does that, then we we are in a deterministic universe. But but it doesn't, have, of course, doesn't have to be that way. That's so, just where we get after decades of of that set of incentives.
1: That's very interesting. It it leads me to think the the lack of agency, the abdication of agency is the result of a downside risk dominated in social environment. And well, the, I, the agency is the result of a upside potential dominated environment.
2: Well, I it's, would say that it's it's the difference between a a skin, you know, what Taleb would call a skin in the game environment versus a neck on the line environment. Like which, so the, hmm. yeah, yeah. Which, like or, or this idea
0: in psychology of sort of loss aversion versus uh gain gain seeking right right uh, well i mean
2: like at the point that i'm i'm risking my capital and i mm-hmm. i lose and i lose my own capital well then you know that's it but at the point that losing my capital also gets me held before the review board also makes me unemployable because i'm you know put in the the gazette And you know whatever the the additional social sanctions may be that go beyond whatever I put at risk, in order to provide enough extra protection, because you know you can't trust you can't you can't allow caveat emptor to be a a guiding principle in a society at the point that you make all of those kind of uh, assumptions, and you get things like the Securities Act and the Securities Exchange Act and you know all all and and the more heinous contemporary uh you know sarbanes oxley where the ceo and cfo have to put themselves criminally uh, into criminal potential liability for the verification of their financials you know all of those things are are all downstream of this like delegation of agency uh, you know or abdication of agency and then more and more and more so like at the point that uh that that you want to that politicians want to get votes by you know creating enemies, and then those enemies, you know happen to be people that perform relatively important managerial functions in society. Then they say, "Well, I don't want to be a manager anymore. I'll hire somebody to be a manager. i, I and then i'll I'll then, if things go wrong, I'll blame them and and I'll keep my share capital uh, and and I don't have to I can then hire new managers if I have to fire the old ones and send them to prison. Uh, You know, and, and I mean, this is, you know, the sad reality in, in which we're living. Whereas if you if you think about like why Swiss banks were until, you know, the last two decades quite impenetrably safe places to put your money, it's that they, they were general partnerships where the general partners bore unlimited liability for the 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 debts of the bank. So if the if the bank is wiped out, then the general partners who run the bank are they had their homes repossessed and they're gone all their assets liquidated and so of course they're never going to go bankrupt but at the point that you can be lehman brothers and the you know the ceo cfo board of directors can say well we didn't know it wasn't us you know you don't look at me then you get this catastrophic explosion of risk and then when it blows up, you get more regulations. And then you know, this this pushes yeah, yeah. it farther and, and so, farther and farther.
1: That, I mean what's so interesting about this is like maybe then the to bring it back to the AI thing, part of the reason people fear the machine is is that well, the machine will have agency because a computer cannot be held accountable. Right. Well, right it's, it's like it's it's sort of this assumption is like, well, you can't hold the machine accountable, so then it won't have all these limitations that we have, right? It's, exactly. It's, it's, it's and sort this of subconscious.
2: Right, it's why the managerial class is running toward it because they they're saying ah, at last we can be right at free. least something. We say, yeah, we, we can, can be. Say, look at the machine, the
0: algorithms. Yeah, I I mean we it's very interesting because one of the other quotes that I had one of the other uh, strains of, of 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 thought here is sort of what you could call um, you know woke AI or or the idea that um, reducing bias and, and, um, particular, um, disproportionate impact of the technology is is sort of ought to be the priority of all of the, all of the discourse around AI safety. And, um, it, it reminds, this all reminds me though, of the, it's like how much of this is ultimately just a sort of buck passing exercise of Mm -hmm. using the technology, uh, to do things that would be too um that would be too you know potentially fraught for for a human to take responsibility for uh such an action right and and i think that's actually the part of you know someone like uh timnit Gebru's argument that i really endorse which is the idea that like yeah there's totally this way in which uh uh people will use uh computer systems to basically launder uh the responsibility for
2: mm-hmm.
0: um you know getting an outcome they want but not having to basically uh take responsibility for having been the uh decision maker or the right. you know sort of even and, if they are some sort of subtle architect of the process that still led to the same right and um,
1: what they're what they're saying is actually no you are accountable for the thing that your ai system does you, you sort of not necessarily accountable in a, uh, in, in all the ideal ways that we would like but accountable in the way that uh, at least sort of politically accountable for the, for your system but then that also leads to this uh like like skinner's saying again this kind of persecution of agency right it's mm-hmm. it's well you're not even allowed to make a computer program to make these decisions it's just you're not allowed to do anything um
2: i I, it it sort of brings to mind the, the uh the story arc in the lord of the rings where uh you have gollum who needs to get rid of frodo so that he can get the ring back i mean and he's driven exclusively i mean gollum is as a character sort of represents The loss of meaningful agency, right? You know, you have like somebody who's been, whose mind has been completely twisted toward and prostituted to the service of power. Um, I mean, that that I, at least my interpretation of this sort of metaphor of Gollum. And, and what does, but, but, you know, Gollum is not relative, not that he's strong, but, you know, there, there's always the possibility that, uh, that he might get Caught trying to do the thing he's going to do, and then he would, you know, be killed or or something. And, and so, what does he want to do? He wants to have Shelob the spider. Mm-hmm. He, like, oh, I, she can take care of this. We can we can take them there, and then I'll be I I can get what I want, but not not be held accountable for it. I think this is actually a really strong metaphor for the the, the whole agentic problem that we're talking about here. In, in the in the realm of capitalism, because actually, I don't think we would be having any of these arguments about, about agency around AI in this context, if we had some hypothetically other economic system and, you know, as a context for which this is taking place, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think that it's like, it's really key to see that the, the materialism question isn't just about like, whether we get replaced, but it's also as a the the pre-existing incentive environment is part of the story here like it's part Mm -hmm. of why it's going in this direction rather than in some other direction and and so we also should see that there's a there's going to be and already has been of course you know reflexive responses to each stage of development so I think this is also one of the problems that I have with the people that talk about, well, on this path, AI will at this, you know, arbitrary point in the future look like whatever. Well, but this is this assumes that you can just draw that line and that there aren't going to be reactions and disruptions to it. And and in fact, there there always are.
0: Yeah, Wolf and I were even just discussing yesterday how, of course, you can think about, for example, we've seen these amazing developments in computer vision that that are sort of the the latest and the latest
1: generation of imagery
0: yes uh uh the latest development um of course there's there's sort of what the possibility of the technology um or sorry sorry what, what there's what the the narrow technical possibility makes possible um and then there's uh how it actually gets absorbed and ref and, and react responded to with human culture. And it's I think I think probably there tends to be too much focus on you know capabilities as such and, and way too little focus on how do the capabilities or the advent of such capabilities get get absorbed and reacted to by this like complex reflexive social mm-hmm. set of uh, set, set set of circumstances um,
1: yeah and the thing you were saying that i thought was interesting on that front is you know when someone puts out ai art at first it was all very impressive you know it, it gives this immediate impression of being like this impressive art of the kind that some artists would spend a huge amount of time producing and then you look closer and you realize oh wait there's all these little deviations from what i would expect like there's too many fingers or there's two hands or in where there shouldn't be or what, all these little things or the more subtle things. And, and now it's to the point where, you know, you put out AI art and everyone can recognize it as such. And, and the humans have learned the, the, the social system around right. It so there's, there's a reinforcement it given a learning given that happens value. with
0: the machine. There's a reinforcement learning mm-hmm. that happens on the machine side, but there's also a reinforcement learning that happens on the, on the human side. And I don't think we pay nearly enough attention to like, Mm -hmm. what those processes look like. Um, Guys, I think this is a great conversation. Uh, I think we should wrap it up, though. And just quickly before we go, yes, we will continue (laughs) to have many more of these. Um, What, uh, just quickly, uh, what do people need to know about the AI conclave and
1: why should um, they come? So if... You're capable uh, and interested in having these kinds of discussions, especially sort of the at the intersection of the technical possibility and the philosophical rigor. Um, we'd be very interested in having you there, you should apply it's a very simple process Just send in your application, give us a few logistical details in particular something you should know you don't have to come for the whole month, um, maybe come for a week come for a few days. Um, depending on what your schedule allows we'd love to see you there. We'll be there the whole time really diving into it um, but we'd love to see a whole variety of people so if you're at all interested you should apply
2: i i think that there, there'll be a few environments you'll find that you'll have the opportunity to both connect with the kind of the diversity of minds and perspectives that that we're going to have there and in the environment of being full, fully fully embedded in in mediterranean nature surrounded by Mediterranean pine forest and, you know, around 30,000 acres of hiking trails, um, through in, in the park where the estate sits, uh, which is just a stone's throw from, from the sea. And I think that we will have a lot of these conversations, um, not even sitting, you know, sitting in chairs, but walking around the forest, um, listening to the birds and listening to the waves of the sea. And I think that's a, that will change the whole the whole tenor of the the experience and definitely not your average tech event
1: <laughs> right
0: well skinner and wolf thank you so much thank you Matt. talk Thanks, to you guys. soon